Okay, welcome back everyone for our Saturday Tea Time Q&A session. This will be the, uh, the last one that I host for the retreat. So uh, we got a nice list of questions sent in from everyone today, but uh, just remind people in the in the Zoom room, the Pacific Her Hermitage Retreatants, um, if you'd like to raise your hand um, to ask a follow-up question, and we can go ahead and, and do that. Uh, I think we have a nice balance of questions from people in our retreat group that are here in the room, as well as some from around the world from other people. So, and we have an hour or so. Let's go ahead and begin exploring. And the first question is going to come from Rowan in Portland, Oregon. Rowan, you want to go ahead and ask your question? Yeah, uh, thanks, Adon. Uh, my question is, uh, this may be covered tonight in some way, so forgive me if that's the case, but this question is regarding anxiety, specifically when it manifests in the body as physical pain, tightness, or tension. Um, sometimes anxiety will arise kind of out of nowhere for me during formal practice or not, and plants itself firmly as a tightness in the chest or as a sort of vibration and tension throughout the body. Um, I've tried to be with the pain, notice the dukkha, vedana, and examine it as I would other unpleasant bodily sensations, but the anxiety seems to take on an entirely different feel sometimes and doesn't quite respond as well to the usual methods of investigation. Um, it's kind of as if the anxiety has been led into the city, but I'm unsure as to how it got there and how to approach it in a mindful way. Um, do you have any insight as to how anxiety fits into the framework of the four foundations or any suggestions of how to address this peculiar form of emotional and physical dukkha besides just relaxing and meditation and seeing what happens? Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the last part there is is a critical component, like the rest of the path and relaxing and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, first, I'm quite a quite aware of this and anxiety tends to be a, a very big problem for us. There's a few different emotions that I've always wondered why they don't get more uh, prominence in some of the classifications that the Buddha has around the chief defilements that we experience as human beings. I mean, we, we're all familiar with the classification of greed, hatred, and delusion. What about anxiety? And also what about fear? And there are some places in the sutta where the Buddha signals out fear in particular as being a, a, a great kind of problem. And I might just note part of the answer to your question here is thinking about in terms of greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, where does anxiety fit in? And it's, uh, it's classified as a state of delusion. And that's, that's part of why it's so difficult to catch you 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 referenced you referenced this model that Ajahn's talking about the city gate and it's like I don't know how they got in there but you know it seems to come out of nowhere sometimes and emotional habits are like this the uh, and I think there's even a little bit of science that supports this now um, neuroscience that the emotion comes first and then the thoughts come later to try to understand how we got there and justify what's going on. That's not to say that it comes out of nowhere. That's not to say that it comes from self. There, there is sense contact. There is stimuli. There is some reason that fear and anxiety are provoked. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to. And oftentimes, especially if it's a uh, stubborn emotional habit that we have, it, it does not need to be led by conscious thought meaning uh, you're, you're stewing about something and, and anxiety comes up in a very discursive, conscious way. But there is some sort of sense contact that's coming um, and it's confecting this uh, expression of anxiety. And the way it fits into the Satipatthana, um, chiefly what came to mind listening to your question is, in this classification of the chitta or mindfulness of the mind, uh, remember yesterday we talked about 
these kind of four different pernicious states of mind that are especially relevant for a meditator to develop mindfulness around. And, um, you know, is, is greed present or not? Is hate present or not? Is uh, delusion present or not? And is um, distraction present or not? And um, this is a delusory state. And so one way to just unpack that is to start to develop uh, mindfulness of the presence of anxiety and the absence of anxiety. And as I said yesterday, when we were talking about that, this can be very helpful. Um, one, just it, it furthers our ability to start tuning in and being more sensitive to the rising and ceasing of this. Um, so we, we tend to, you know, if we make this a practice and we take, take care to sort of note this in the practice of the Satipatthana, we'll catch it more often, we'll catch it earlier, and we'll see it with more clarity and we'll start to learn what, how it got in. We'll start to learn some of what is uh, feeding the anxiety arising in the mind. It's difficult because it is a delusory state. Um, and the same can be said of other delusory states like doubt and fear. Um, it's difficult to see. But we, we can uh, awaken to this and we can sort of become a student of how it is, when, where, reflecting sort of what was I thinking of, what, what was I just recently exposed to. Um, in the practice of cognitive psychology, um, follows along these lines and to my understanding is influenced by buddhism so that's one way that we can uh practice with it part of the side benefit in this chitta approach to working with emotions like this too is just to step out of the story of self um like myself i i tend to identify as someone who is anxious and prone to anxiety. Um, my, my father was like that. My sister's like that. I'm like that. Um, and so, and, and it's, it's not helpful um, if grasped in the wrong way as me, mine, myself, this is my problem special to me. We're not alone. Like all humans have problems with this, maybe some more than others. Um, it's just anxiety arising and ceasing, and it's a problematic sort of manifestation of the defilements. So just by moving to this, what we were calling the binary um, noting of its presence and its absence, uh, just just by that, it moves us toward this more objective sort of position, stepping out of self and can help in many circumstances from disengaging with over-personalizing it, um, which oftentimes just compounds what's going on. When will I ever be free of this? Why do I, why am I such an anxious person? Um, all kinds of proliferations and doubts start to snowball uh, if we engage with it in other ways. And so this could be a skillful way just to, to note it. Note its presence. Note its absence. It's not, you're not anxious 24 um, 7. Hey, look, I'm not anxious. Uh, and to attend to its absence can be really uh, inspiring and also undermine that identification, which is not a helpful response. Like I just talked about Yoniso Manasikra, um, wise reflection. That's not a wise way to reflect on anxiety. Anxiety comes, goes, there is causes and reasons that it comes and goes. And although it can be difficult to see them um, with practice, we'll start to see them. And then there are other parts of the path that are withdrawing the nutriments and strengthening the mind and the other factors of the practice that eventually will relieve them. And in particular, you know, I have found practices on uh, metta bhavana and equanimity as useful. So keep those in your toolbox and make some sort of commitment to keep developing those practices. Practice of metta one in particular, because part of the aspect of practicing the generation of goodwill is, is not just for 
well-being and happiness, but also safety. And so that aspect of metabawan, I think, helps mm, inoculate one emotionally against uh, extreme anxiety. And then equanimity, um, this kind of evenness of mind, everything's okay, it all belongs, we can accept it. Breath meditation, very emotional, emotionally um, tranquilizing and steadying can can help a lot. And then in the right time and place, the wisdom reflections, uh, the perception of death, the contemplation of death. Now, this might seem strange because you know, if you're not in the right place, that can intensify the anxiety. But and when you come to know yourself and have some experience with this practice, sometimes that cuts right through the anxiety. You know, it's as simple as thinking of like, I have anxiety about some worldly concern. Uh, and, and the reflection on the finite nature of our life and that eventually we will die sometimes has this power to cut through um, some of these emotional states of fear, anxiety, and anger. Like, you know, sometimes like in the bigger scheme of things, is this really something to worry about? Someday I'll be dead, you know, and in a week, a month, a year, this won't be an issue. So why waste my time creating uh, undue anxiety about it right now? And you don't, you know, it kind of cuts through that believing in the emotion, the trusting in the emotion, the extra investment in the emotion, which feeds it. And you, you need to withdraw the food for these emotions to resolve them. Um, and then lastly, just the reflection on um, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So the impermanent, insubstantial nature of things, the unsatisfactory nature of things, and the selfless nature of things. And I already touched on the selflessness when talking about Chittanupasana and stepping outside of the story, that's a little way to induce and use wise reflection to, to neutralize uh, afflictive emotions like this. But you, know, you can also reflect on the other characteristics of impermanence. This too shall pass. This is insubstantial. It's just causally conditioned. Ever flowing on, it will change. It will, you know... How many times have you just have we, have we done this? Like we have a bad day, and we can't change our mind. We can't shake it, not fully. Um, and then you just reflect, tomorrow's a new day. Like in some sense, that's a very common, approachable way. Just to reflect on this too shall pass and the impermanence of it, and it takes up takes out a lot of the obsessive, anxious energy that uh, feeds the emotion and intensifies it. So so those are a few thoughts for you, Rowan. Any uh, any comments or follow-up there before we move on? Uh, that was that was very help, helpful. Thank you for your thorough uh, explanation. Yeah, that was a good question. So let's Thank see. You, Oops. Uh, yeah, Joan, please go ahead. Thank you. And thank you, Rowan, for asking that question. It's very helpful for me also. And I am just, I, I just had to say, I'm currently involved in taking a course um, on fear and anxiety mm. and um, with my sister-in-law, who is a therapist. And uh, we're just getting started. So I don't know. Um, I just thought maybe I could get a little bit of the brain science, you know, from from her. And I know there's a lot of new that, but she did mention in the first lesson about the plast, you know, when I went through nursing school, there was no plasticity of the brain. And, <laughs> and the now there is. Time, yeah. Yeah. And now there is. So I just wanted to say that, that for me, that gives me, uh, I don't know if you want to call it hope, but it gives me reason to continue to practice because many of my neural pathways I know were set when I was so young. Hmm. And, you know, you, you, those main neural pathways to go to anxiety hmm. would, are, were set with me when I was so young. So I just, I find that um, 
really helpful and in my in my practice too that I can just keeps me going. Mm. So I don't really have a question, but um, thank you for your answer. That was helpful. Mm. Yeah, well, the it's nice to see that Western science is catching up with Buddha. The Buddha was asserting that you can change your mind a very long time ago. Yeah. So, and um, finally, Western science is catching up to that in its own way. I'm very interested in this, Joan. Um, in fact, a, a year or so ago, I, I was thinking this would make a nice little side study project. Just I haven't, uh, I haven't read any books on anxiety for quite a few years, so maybe we can talk uh, in the uh, future. And I'd like to, I'd like to steal your reading list from you. Um, uh, yes, I will send you some of the resources. That... Okay. Yeah. Great. So, okay. Well, let's let's move on. Uh, Shelley Baxter from White Salmon, Washington. Thank you, uh, John. I think you might have also answered my question. Uh, the buckets of greed, greed, hatred, and delusion. I was kind of focusing on the other five buckets of the five hindrances mm. and thinking about uh, the stuff that comes up during the day and that I hadn't been bucketing them really. Um, anger is the obvious one that would be annoyance or mm -hmm. sloth and torpor, the timida, it's just too too much effort. And uh, when you were talking to Rowan, it was occurring to me that those larger buckets are harder to, I mean, they're just pretty hard to pin down, um, like hatred. Uh, you know, that's one that's not so common for a lot of people um anxiety may be more like rowan was mentioning or also even say depression mm. i don't tend to suffer from depression i get a little bit blue like my grandmother used to say <laughs> uh, i feel a little blue i felt a little blue this morning with nobody to talk to uh but i so i tried to look today in my practice what 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 buckets to throw stuff in and so i was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate on the hindrance buckets again please hmm. well it's it's useful i think you might need to mute the youtube uh if that's on or something um yeah i mean it's a useful um framework and you know what's What's being elucidated here in the Satipatthana Sutta is like, you know, this this is something one should be mindful of. And, you know, it's coming up both in the Chitta Nupasana, really. I mean, half of those mind states and the ones that are most common of mind states that we're experiencing before we're unsurpassable, um, are fully liberated, uh, are hindrances or... Uh, major defilements of mind so you know it's just it's just a very important mind training to to notice that i was i was talking uh i was talking about this this morning in my morning coffee time sort of thing and the, the importance of mapping this to your experience and you know what i mean by that really is uh, understanding sufficiently enough what what the Buddha is kind of pointing out here, taking it on as a hypothesis that this is the problem, this is um, what is supporting the habits that create emotional um, disturbances and dissatisfaction and uh, the state of not being emotionally free and not being as well as one could be. Uh, and so, in the learning. Learning how to use these classification systems are ways of modeling our experience so that we can develop sufficient clarity of mind to notice when they're present, when they're absent. And you don't want to get overly hung up sometimes with these models and classification systems. It's uh, the mind's a very nuanced thing. Um, the most important thing is, is the mind experiencing a skillful state or unskillful state? And that's that's an even simpler way to model the mind. But as we know, um, having a model with various levels of resolution or detail can 
help draw our attention more clearly um, into a different level of detail and understanding. So, you know, we can classify things as skillful and unskillful, or we can use this model of the five hindrances to start to model what's going on in the mind and whether these states are present or absent. But we really need to um, get a basic understanding of them and then practice uh, reflecting on these again and again. And let's, let's move back or let's return to the maybe original, more fundamental meaning of sati, which is to remember. Like, so we, we remember these models. We remember these buckets, as you put it, these ways of classifying experience. And we have to bring that to mind again and again. It doesn't come natural to us. Um, we're usually thinking the thought formations are flowing out from the habit structures, the desire structures, uh, and along the lines that are created by the misguided notions of permanence, satisfactoriness, and self. So the story of the self dominates a huge part of our day, as well as the thought of what's next? What should I be doing? What's going to make me happy? What's going to bring me satisfaction? Maybe in the present moment or at a future moment. Like, like that's normally how we're thinking and framing our experience. Um, or what is it I need to get away from? What does I need to free myself from? Uh, and what I call pleasure-centric kind of thinking. We're just thinking about pain and pleasure in the way that we talked about it when we talked about Vedana. So, you know, learning, learning this classification sort of system, this way of thinking and modeling and remembering to note that uh, in your day and in your experience. And I don't think it comes natural to people. So uh, it really does take some time. And, uh, but there's, there's a wonderful reward to it um, because you're not constantly in the grips of these things, especially if you're given to uh, cultivating skillful states of mind and meditating a little bit. So you get, you do get to experience the delicious mindfulness of this is absent. Um, these five states are absent. It's like when one reflects on one's um, virtue. It could be easy um, to look at the five precepts and feel like, well, that's pretty simple, like not killing other living beings and not stealing and not engaging in sexual misconduct, right speech. Well, I don't tell lies. And then the one on uh, clarity of mind is sobriety, um, which might not be a problem for many people. And you can think, well, I keep the five precepts. I mean, well enough. How come I don't? experience the kind of happiness that's described in the suttas and freedom from remorse. Like I still don't feel perfect. I still don't identify as being a blameless, virtuous person maybe. And some of that just could be because you're not taking the time to reflect on it. That um, you're not engaging in uh, unskillful behavior like that. So, and that, that, that echoes kind of like part of the uh, bright side of reflecting on these uh, hindrances again and again. And I might just, since we're touching on the hindrances here, a very useful set of teachings is, you know, the Buddha talks about these hindrances being the nutriments for the defilements. The defilements don't come out of nowhere. They don't sustain themselves out of nowhere. They need nutriment. And these hindrances are the nutriment for the defilements. So, so being able to track this allows us to see if we're feeding our little monsters or not. Um, and uh, when we start to sort of become more aware of how often we're feeding the monster, then we can start to make some decisions and train ourselves to, uh, to stop that and instead create the food for the seven factors of awakening. So. Well, thank you. Mm.
Okay, well, let's go back to Joan. Joan, you had a question here uh, today. Hi, Ajahn. Um, yes, it, uh, after some rambling, there was a question. <laughs> I, first off, I just wanted to uh, appreciate, there was just so many moments in Ajahn Sona's talk last night that were, uh, that were, that just hit me. And I had a memory come up, um, especially when, when I, when he started talking about Yoni Soma's Kara, um, that I, I flashed back to uh, being at Portland Friends of the Dhamma in Selwood. And I think that Stan, if you remember him, uh -huh. he was asking you or one of, I think it was you that was there about something, about this. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that word. And it just, I had such appreciation for all the people that have along the way have taught me you know, all the teachers that I've had, you being one of them, mm. and Ajahn Sona, of course. So um, it just, it, it warmed my heart. Mm. And I just hadn't heard it talked about in a long time. So I appreciate it being in the talk. But he related that to, uh, of course, it's wise reflection and wise attention, being able to see the true nature of experience. You know, he was talking about how this is, this is that, how it's so important being this internal factor. Mm. And um, I, you see that throughout the uh, suttas or in, in the teachings. I have a quote from Ajahn Mun that I use a lot, and it talks about seeing the true nature of the body. Mm. And when I see true nature, when I see that, heard it, hear it, or see it written, I think that means the three characteristics. Mm. Is that correct? That nature or true nature, that the teacher is, is expressing that I'm, we're seeing that it's, it's, in, it's impermanence, it's unsatisfactoriness, and it's insufficiency. Substantiality. I can't really say it. It's just like you. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we trip on that sometimes. Yeah. So well, I just—that was it. It was just a basic. Is that right, or does true nature, when true nature of something, is that? That's right. Yeah. No. Um, so it is wise reflection um, to like reflect on our experience and see it as anicca, as dukkha, as anatta. Um, there's other ways that we can see it, um, you know, seeing it through the Four Noble Truths as well um, would be reflecting on the true nature. Um, this, this word true nature could get a little slippery, so we, you know, we, we might want to sort of define it and pin it down. And I would say the best way to define it is Dhamma, or sometimes they talk about such a Dhamma, the true Dhamma. And let's remind ourselves, um, Dhamma has a broad sort of set of meanings, but um, in the context of our practice and, and reflecting along these lines, it's the, the truth or the true nature of something which supports the process of liberation or the cessation of dukkha. So it, why is reflection is to see in in uh, our experience, the sign, or the characteristic of anicca, of dukkha, of anatta, um, like whether that's like reflecting on the body as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, um, whether we're examining feelings, uh, emotions, perceptions, even sense consciousness whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or good or bright, okay. uh, lofty or worldly. Um, it's that is, that is wise reflection. Uh, or that's one of the ways that wise reflection is, is exercised. And what's the opposite of that? Um, the opposite of that is seeing with the coloration of delusion. So it's seeing permanence. It's, seeing things as satisfactory, seeing things as self. And the Buddha, the Buddha says in several places, the world, that is how the world sees things. Um, it's not that rationally they don't understand that things change and are impermanent, but um, this, this word in Nietzsche is like much more deep and profound than that. 
it's like seeing seeing how things are impermanent and unsatisfactory and therefore they are not self in a way that changes our relationship to it. Uh, a lot of the ways that we understand maybe rationally or otherwise that things are uh, impermanent in some ways doesn't necessarily transform our experience of suffering. Um, in fact, it can go the other way. Um, wow, this is impermanent, so I better get as much as I can. You know, I better enjoy it while I can. Uh, like that's that's not what the Buddha is talking about. Um, he's talking about its inability to bring you uh, freedom and the most profound sense of well-being through this process of changing your relationship to experience, change your relationship, especially to the body and especially to uh, the sense realm. So, beautiful concept, Yoniso Manasikra, wise reflection. So, and just to remind people, that is the internal component that most strongly supports the process of awakening. So, and we translate it as wise reflection often. Mariam, you have a, something you'd like to share with us? I saw your hand go up. Yes. Sorry, Ajahn, I was trying to unmute myself. Uh, I was going to ask a further, thank you, John, for asking that question. When we are looking at the nature, when we are in the nature, when Ajahn Joe says, Domo is with you all the time and all of that we were just talking about. Um, is this also referring to paying attention to what we are clinching at that time while we are looking at the nature and the Dhamma around us as well? Is that an aspect to it? Well, um, no, I... I mean, it's re it's reflecting on something in a skillful way is another way to put it in the way that's leading us away from suffering or out of suffering. Um, so, you know, the example you give is it's a little hard to understand because there is a way that we can sort of look at it in that way. And it's not leading us on. It's not leading it to resolve itself. Um, but it's possible it could. It just depends on on what you mean by that. So if, you, if you're looking at something, you say, oh, uh, I'm attached. And there's a recognition in there of what it is that's supporting that attachment. Uh, and it might be this, we've forgotten that this can't satisfy us. You know, we're attached to holding on to something or we're attached to something being a particular way. Mm, either we want it to be this way in the future or... Um, we're upset because something hasn't turned out the way we would like it to be, and we're attached, right? Um, that attachment is is based on the on the delusion that we could find satisfaction in that, a kind of satisfaction that the Buddha says can't be had. So you know when we when it comes to us through mindfulness that there's dukkha present in the heart. Um, however it is that we apprehend that, like we feel dis-ease, um, or we recognize that oh, I'm really attached. I really didn't want this. Um, I really was hoping it would come out differently. Uh, wise reflection would, uh, upon apprehending that we're stuck and we're creating dukkha or we're in the grips of dukkha, then is to kind of reflect back and see oh yes this is like dukkha and here that here by dukkha we mean this is like dukkha in the sense that it is unsatisfactory uh, like that notion that i would find satisfaction and completion if i got what i wanted so um so this kind of wise reflection is is a way to sort of aim us back in the way of skillfulness and resolve these unskillful states of mind and these states of suffering that come up. So. Is Thank that, you. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 
All right, let's move on from some of the public questions we have here. This is from Amon Elders in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. With regard to the teaching on perception, how do I re-engineer my perception of a specific object? Is there a general way that one does this? Let's say I'm not just trying to re-engineer my perceptions of the body, of which there are specific teachings on how to do so. So I think he's noting Ajahn's uh, talks there on corpse meditation or 32 parts of the body. Uh, but also for other objects, specifically objects for which I know a negative mental state occurs. For example, half of the time, knives will make a rise of fearful or a murderous thought. <laughs> a strange example. Um, well, Amon, um, there's not an exhaustive teaching on how it is that we should um, develop per perceptions towards everything. Um, I mean, we do have we do have this teaching on the 32 parts of the body, um, probably because it's such a pernicious sort of thing and feeds the desire structures like the habit is to be totally locked into seeing uh, the beautiful aspects of the body and dismissing the unbeautiful aspects of that in consciousness. So as Ajahn was reflecting, it's like we need to get to a state of reality and, and a more balanced sort of way uh, in perceiving bodies. And so we have that specific teaching there, but we don't, I mean, we don't have that for everything. Um, a couple ways that one can uh, train oneself in a more general way is developing perceptions around uh, whether the way that one is perceiving something is, is skillful or unskillful. So that's a very general thing you can apply to sort of almost anything. So your example of knives here, like if you perceive a knife, in some way that it arouses mm, uh, fearful sort of feelings, then, uh, you know, one can sort of identify, well, that's, this is kind of sabotaging my emotional well-being. So maybe I should reflect differently. Um, and uh, instead sort of train myself to evoke a more skillful sort of perception around that. So, uh, you know, for people, this could be a really good practice. I mean, we have all kinds of habitual perceptions um, and assumptions of who somebody is or who they are to us, chiefly uh, like and dislike. And the way that uh, perception works is it tends to magnify itself. Maybe think about this like, let's meet. What does it mean to like somebody? Uh, I mean, there's there's many aspects to it, but just for reflection right now, um, the people that I've decided I, I like, I have a story of who they are, and there's this relationship to mm, who I think they are and who I am. So I like them. I feel an affinity with this person. Uh, but more importantly, there's almost a a pre uh, a preformed condition to to notice the sign of the beautiful, the sign of the positive. What's skillful in that person? What is that I like about that person? And to dismiss, minimize, and ignore the negative. Um, and that can be all well in being most of the time. Sometimes it can lead us into danger. Um, but think about the opposite example, someone that you don't like uh, or someone you have a negative perception of. And every time you encounter this person or every time that person comes to mind, it generates uh, thoughts of hostility, ill will, anger, negativity. Um, and you have a very strong, durable habit of just... Uh, 
attending to the fault, attending to what's wrong with them, what's ugly about them, what it is that you dislike about them, what it is that feels so incongruent with uh, how you see the world or what it is that you like uh, in a being. So um, that's, that's an area where consciously engaging with uh, your perceptive habits can be really useful uh, to seek balance. You know, and you might apply this to uh, uh, you know, other things um, along these frameworks of liking and disliking. Ajahn Chah famously said, if you haven't learned to rise above like and dislike, you haven't even yet begun to practice. And it's a really interesting kind of contemplation uh, to investigate how it is that we create like and dislike and how that um, shapes our perceptions and our habits of how it is that we perceive things. And then again, tie that then into this process of how it is that we create um, suffering. So, you know, other perceptions just um, in closing. Also, you know, one can intentionally cultivate these perceptions of unsatisfactoriness, uh, instability, and not self. So that's anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And their they're mention is specific practices even in several places in the suttas and the commentaries. Like anatta sanya, it's called. The perception of not self. So it's not merely just a state that comes unbidden at the end of a very good meditation retreat or meditation system. Uh, or it's not merely just a mental thought that arises once we finally achieve a certain state of enlightenment and we'll live forevermore with the uh, perception of not self. It's also something that, that one can kind of cultivate the perception of, and it's a very skillful cu- cultivation and form a fact of meditation. So. Okay. The next question we have is from Steve Ross from Tucson. Uh, in the USA. In Friday night's talk, I was startled to hear Ajahn say the mind is intrinsically pure. I thought the hindrances were inherent tendencies. If inherent, then how can the mind be intrinsically pure? Did Ajahn say that? If so, is that in the canon? Is there really Buddha nature after all? Um, I don't know that the hindrances that Ajahn, I mean, Ajahn did say that the mind was intrinsically pure. And there is uh, some things in the suttas, but also there's some uh, famous comments from uh, Ajahn Man, who is kind of considered the grandfather uh, of the Thai forest tradition. I mean, he's the one who really revived what we think of as the modern Thai forest tradition. Um, he talked about the luminous mind. And this is in accord with some passages that you do kind of find in the suttas, although sometimes it's made a little bit too much of. Um, but he talked about the luminous quality of mind and the hindrances or the defilements uh, merely obscure the bright mind. Uh, there's a little... I mean, it's a well. It's a beautiful notion to think this is our original nature, and then it's a, another leap to sort of call it Buddha nature, which we don't really find in the Theravadan canon. You find that maybe in later uh, forms of Buddhism, but you don't really find something in the Pali canon, to my knowledge, that accords with this term Buddha nature. And the and the Buddha doesn't often talk about the the mind having a particular nature. He's more he's more interested to talk about the predicament that we're in and how it is that we can change our mind and the workings of conditioned reality. Uh, in particular, how conditioned reality addresses the predicament that we're in. So, you know, this, the, we, we have the ability to experience a luminous mind and uh, there are obstructions to that and the obstructions are the hindrances. The instructions are the defilements. And uh, when we uh, practice correctly, 
we purify that or we experience the bright and luminous mind and there's a strong encouragement to develop what's called the pabasara jitra jitta which is the luminous mind pabasara jitta um but it's not it's rare the buddhist in the canon is talking about it this as the true nature of our mind he asserts that this is uh uh where we should be heading and this is um well that the defilements are conditions and that they're temporal they're not who you are and that one should engage in the practice and change the mind so one of the analogies i like um when he's talking about the mind is he he talks about it as as we would refine gold and so you know one takes the ore and then it goes through a process of refinement to sort of remove the impurities um until you know finally the gold is is pure it's bright it's soft it's workable it's luminous uh and you know that that sort of image i think works well with what you find coming up more and more when the buddha is talking about the mind in the Pali canon so uh let's see charles you have a comment or question for us uh, yes Ajahn. uh from the studies of the triune mind of the three circles models of our old brains so one useful useful perspective on this question of defilements might be that within our nervous system the hmm. For example, the fight or flight system or the drive and resource acquisition systems, we might say that these defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion are naturally derived from this, this nervous system of ours in certain ways. However, the, the practice in terms of balancing and uh, kind of containing these minds brings us to the luminous mind of consciousness as a part of the path. Hmm. In that way, the, the mind could be regarded as pure in the sense that Ajahn Sona referred to it, and yet where we're often born is ensconced in these nervous systems that, you know, it's like weeds in a garden. These, these old brains uh, generate these conditions and we're wise to recognize what they are, where they're taking us. Mm. And this teaching kind of have a sense of, well, have a sense of what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're certainly not born with luminous minds. Um, I certainly wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the Buddha didn't have some some view that babies are enlightened and, and that they then fall from grace as they um, are um, abused by their parents or, or get conditioned uh, into sort of uh, adulthood. So, um, I mean, you can even think of this in a very naturalistic way. I mean, um, we do have, you know, in Buddhist cosmology where a human being sits is just above the animal realm. And uh, we recognize in the way we kind of conceive of it in the West that we do have animal bodies um, and animal nature. And, you know, one way of of conceiving this experience of dukkha from that sort of framework is that uh, there's naturalistic tendencies uh, to seek happiness and pleasure through safety, security, and um, arranging ourselves in the sense realm and the byproducts of that are um, this very durable habit of reflecting on the world in an unwise way and nurturing these habits of greed, hatred, and delusion are, um, you know, the hindrances in essence. And then, you know, at some point, Uh, we come across the teachings and we're sufficiently sort of inspired to notice that this doesn't work all that well. I mean, it keeps us alive, um, but at a huge cost emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Uh, And then we we work to sort of unravel those habits to uncover uh, a brighter, more luminous kind of experience of consciousness. So... Uh, transcending if you would uh, our animal and human nature even so I'm kind of going out out on a limb there so 
let's move on to the next question. This is from Caitlin from Ottawa, Canada. I really appreciated the connection between unwise attachment to fault and the current pandemic. Do you have any guidance for engaging in conversations with others who are very focused on fault in a productive way? Thank you for taking time to answer our questions and much gratitude for everyone working hard to provide this wonderful retreat at such a helpful time. So, so Caitlin, I was, I read your, I read your question. I was a little uh, doubtful that, I understood this correctly. Do you have any guidance for engaging in conversations with others who uh, are very focused on fault in a productive way? Um, it's kind of counter, it, like on a first read, um, it seems like it's kind of counter to what I expected you to say there. Like, so are you, like, how do you have a productive <laughs> conversation with somebody who's mm, working on the problems of the world and they're attending to sort of what's wrong in the world um, to help them do so in a in a in a better way and um, that's the way I'm going to take your question and just offer some some advice and you know one is by attending to uh, the faults of the world or trying to engage and working to better the world, oftentimes we're, we're fueled by um, a sort of sense of wrongness, this doesn't belong, um, anger, frustration, aversion, hatred. Um, or we're driven by notions uh, of perfection that don't really align with the reality of life in the human realm. And uh, I think there's a lot more skillful ways that we can uh, engage in the world uh, and try to bring about skillful qualities and work on the various challenges and problems of the world. Like, as Ajahn said, there's the Buddha was very clear sighted. Like uh, he knows, he knows what's wrong with the world and there's a lot wrong with the world. Um, but the Buddha and our Arahant or a skillful person uh, doesn't create undue suffering because that's the nature of the world. They're not also they're not apathetic. And so there's various ways that I think you can be clear-sighted about that and then assess the opportunity to to give and to do and to gauge in skillful ways. I like the concept of being a steward. Um you know, rather than you're trying to make something happen, you're trying to create good conditions to uh, work on the problems of the world or improve the world. And somehow to me, like that notion of being a steward as opposed to trying to force some change in the world feels a little more equanimous, patient, kind, balanced. Um, and also... Um, paying particular attention to mm, cultivating the, the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, gladness, and equanimity, and letting those be um, the emotions that, that fuel one's kind of engagement in focusing on the, on the problems of the world, as opposed to greed, hatred, and delusion uh, are some misguided notions that we can somehow fix the problems of the world or create a paradise here on earth. Um, this is not the heaven realm. This is the human realm. And uh, there will always be wars and competition and all kinds of ugliness in the human realm. Um, the human realm is special and unique because it is quite a mixture of blessings and also difficulties and troubles. Um, so, you know, one does want to be too negative about it there's plenty of blessings and beauty to be had in the world and goodness to be had in the world and also in people and uh if you don't see it that way then it's good to reflect on um our attachment to the faults and uh, to try to self-correct so that we can return to sort of seeing it in, in a very balanced way there's plenty of goodness but also there is evil and unskillfulness 
And if we can remain balanced uh, and fuel ourselves with uh, wise emotions and proper emotions, then uh, we give ourselves a, a better platform for um, con- being, being someone who can contribute to uh, working on the problems and alleviating pain, suffering, and some of the unskillfulness that's out there in the world. So. Okay, we're just about out of time. So let's see if we can get through three more questions. Patty Panzik from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Patty. Thanks for your question. As Ajahn Sona said, the five hindrances and seven factors of awakening are the foundation for our practice. Where do the khandas fit into this paradigm? I'm thinking that the khandas are the base for the hindrances. That is, that the hindrances arise from the khandas. Is this right thinking? Um, <clears throat> well, I think what you might be thinking of there, I wouldn't put it in that way, Patty. Like uh, the condos aren't the basis, but what you might be thinking there is there is teachings um, which try to sum up the experience of dukkha or the problem of dukkha being the attachment to the five condos. So maybe that's what you're thinking of there. And that's, that's in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. Like, uh, you know, they go through the list of the various uh, challenges of dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. And then in the chanting that that we do uh, of this, it's like, in short, attachment to the five khandas. So, and that, that comes out of the suttas there. So if that's what you're thinking of, like, in that sense, yes, but... Um, you don't want to take that too far. And it's not that the hindrances come out of uh, the khandas. So you could say our relationship to the khandas is such that uh, our experience is riddled with hindrances. That might be a better way to think of it. So, And if you go back and listen to Ajahn's talk, um, right towards the end, he, in three minutes, squeezes the five khandas in because uh, they are kind of covered in other places in the Satipatthana Sutta. So, um, as well as the, the last section as part of Dhamma categories. So, maybe um, revisit that very last um, couple, couple minutes of the Dhamma talk and he sort of stitches it in there. So, Willa Valdez from San Juan Capistrano in the U.S., Ajahn Sona has mentioned death and dying due to COVID-19. Could you say something about the Buddhist perspective on grief and how it differs and how it differs from how the rest of the world experiences it? Thank you. Mm. We don't have much time, Willa, but in brief, um, the Buddha classifies grief as an unskillful emotion. It's, it's natural, but in short, he says it's a waste of time to stay stuck in grief for too long. And you know, there are notions that people have that you need to grieve a certain amount or that grief is a, a productive emotion. And uh, the Buddha differs from that. He says it's, it's an unskillful emotion. Um, it is it's quite a natural human experience, but it's, it's fueled by um, our lack of understanding. And so... And there's several passages in the Sutta where the Buddha is encountering somebody who's grieving and he just counsels them to consider the magnitude of suffering in life and, and how unproductive it is to waste one's energy uh, grieving too much. So he doesn't say we shouldn't have that emotion, but he just sort of says it's not, it's not useful to sort of harbor it and wallow in it or really lean into it. You know, One should try to resolve it. It's not a skillful sort of state of mind. So lastly, um, Renee Hirschfield from Werner, <laughs> uh, these international names get me, Werner Road, uh, Germany. And I'm sure I got that wrong. Sorry about that, Renee. Dear Ajahn Sona and dear Ajahn Sudanto, could you please go into details about the term tranquilizing the bodily formations? Um, in the first section of the Sutta uh, on Anapanasati instructions. What are exactly these bodily sankharas and 
are they calming down by themselves when one is doing anapanasati? Are they supposed to calm down, supposed to be calmed down intentionally? And if the latter, how to do that? Thank you very much. And sadhu, sadhu, sadhu for all the instructions. All the best, Renee. Uh, so briefly, Renee, the uh, Kaya Sankara in the Anapanasati Sutta, Sankara just means that which is conditioned, that which is uh, has come together. So Kaya Sankara is really just referring to the bodily formation, the body. And one of the steps in Anapanasati is tranquilizing that. That can come up quite naturally, like as a byproduct of following the previous steps of Anapanasati, but one can also give it a nudge. One can also intentionally um, arouse the instruction to tranquilize the body and induce that in one's meditation. So um, so the answer to your question is both. Um, all right. Well, we made it through, and it's 5 o'clock. So thank you all. And uh, this has been... a a joy um, having this time to uh, answer questions and revisit some of the teachings of Ajahn's uh, talks over these nights. And uh, I hope it's been beneficial for everyone who's been in the room and tuning in. And then I guess it'll be on YouTube for who knows how long. So maybe people will find usefulness of this uh, time that we've had uh, going forward in the future. So, uh, Leave it at that for now. And uh, tomorrow, I believe at this time, although I don't have the schedule firmly in mind, uh, there will be a question and answer session that Ajahn Sona's recorded for the Pacific Hermitage Retreatants. So, and that'll be the one Q&A um, public kind of session that he's doing for this retreat. So watch for that on the uh, Ajahn Sona channel. And uh, to all the Pacific Hermitage Retreatants, I hope to be engaging with you in other places soon and maybe meeting here at the Hermitage before too long. So take care and uh, all the best in your practice. Thank you, Ajahn.